ready for Mark chapter 15 today? We've been in this last um, week of Jesus' life now for some time. We've probably spent the last six weeks of studying through the gospel of Mark um, in this last week of Jesus' life. The Passion Week, it's, it's commonly referred to. And now we've reached the last... 48 hours in the last 24 and now we are on the last the very last hours of Jesus's life as he's going to in the in the chapter that we're going to study today die on a cross for your sins and my sins where Jesus conquers sin and death and it's Friday where we're studying today but Sunday is coming. And, and, and I hope you understand what that means, that it's Friday in our lives sometimes, but uh, Sunday's coming. And that's a perspective that we want to just live with. We want to have in our lives. And yeah, Jesus suffered and died, but he rose again on Sunday. And and the Bible promises that that you and I as Christian people, one of the promises you probably don't have highlighted and on the fridge in your house is that you will suffer persecution if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. You guys have flowers around that and a little pot in your house up on the fridge. You will suffer persecution as a Christian. That's, that's not necessarily a promise. Instead, on the fridge, we have God will supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and, and yet, the, just as powerful is a promise that we will suffer. And Jesus, no different, suffered and died. And it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And sometimes in our life, I think I felt like that this week, and maybe not that bad, and I don't mean to demean the, the cross and what Jesus did in my little tiny suffering of pity party that I was throwing over, over the door closing on this building that, 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 that I felt like and was excited to, to, you know, get to build and be a part of. And yet Sunday came pretty quick, you know, in, in that day. And I think that's just, again, a perspective that we want to have. And so as we get into chapter 15, um, we're, we're going to see in last week, just to kind of bring you up to speed just a little bit. And I'll try to be quick with the, the, the last week's um, catch up from last week. So Jesus went through six trials on, on the night that he, was, that he was betrayed. So basically we start in the Garden of Gethsemane somewhere in the evening after dark. So we don't know exactly what time, but let's just call it um, 10.30 at night for argument's sake. Okay, so 10.30 p.m., Judas Iscariot and the Roman soldiers show up and, and Judas kisses Jesus and betrays him. The soldiers grab him and they lead him from the Garden of Gethsemane back down into the Kidron Valley, back up onto Mount Moriah to his right, to Jesus's right would be where the Dome of the Rock is today, the Temple Mount. And just to the left of that, um, or, or to the south of where the Temple Mount is today is a house that stands to this day, the ruins of, that I was in recently, called Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the ruling leader of Israel and the Jewish um, people. He was the one that once a year would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices unto the Lord, the high priest. So he goes to Caiaphas's house sometime, you know, after... Again, 1030 as he goes there and he begins uh, throughout the night until 9 a.m. the next morning when he's on the cross. So whenever he left the garden to 9 a.m. the next morning, he's in six trials, three religious and three um, uh, secular, three religious and um, three from the Romans. 
So he goes through the three religious trials from Caiaphas and Annas and Caiaphas. And then he's led to Pontius Pilate. And you guys know the story. Pilate saw him and then Pilate was trying to get rid of him, sent him to Herod. And then Herod sent him back to Pilate for the sixth trial throughout the night. And that's where we find ourselves. The three religious um, trials throughout the night are are completed. And now they're going to take him to the Romans and he's going to take him to the house of Pontius Pilate. So from the southern part of, of the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah where Caiaphas's house was, he's going to be led now past the temple to the northern corner, northwest corner of the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock sits today, that area where Solomon's temple was. And on the corner is what's called the Antonio Fortress. And the Antonio Fortress was the Roman um, presence in Jesus' time. It could look down. It could see all the activities of the Jews. And as you guys know, that, that, that Jerusalem and Israel was... was um, uh, was a division of Rome and that they, they, they ruled that area. And so that brings us to verse number one. And it says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered them nothing. And then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they, ver- they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, and so that Pilate marveled. You know, really quickly, kind of a, a rabbit trail here. There's a couple terms that, that, that I use from time to time. I want to explain them just so we, we can catch them for reference. Some of this stuff, none of you are going to care. It's going to go over your head, but we're going to do it anyways. The, the term Torah is a term that for the first five books of Moses. So when you, you talk to a rabbi today, a Jewish person today who's not Messianic, you know, they talk about and they use the term the Torah, the first five books. Another word for Torah you might hear is Pentateuch. Penta is, is, means five. Pentateuch is the first five books of Moses. And then you'll hear the word the Tanakh. And that's one of those words where you like get ready to spit a loogie at the end of it. Tanakh. Tanakh. And the Tanakh is the entire writings of the Old Testament. So if you hear the term Torah or Pentateuch, first five books, the Tanakh is the entire Old Testament writings. And then um, you have a term you'll hear from time to time called the Mishnah or the Talmud. And the Mishnah and the Talmud are extra biblical writings. They were oral traditions. And there was tons of things that the Jews passed down in their law by oral tradition. And at some point in their history, somebody decided to record all of the oral laws. So all of the oral laws were were recorded in the Mishnah, 63 chapters. And then they took 36 chapters of what was important to them and, and they recorded it in the Talmud. Last week, I told you guys that the trial that Jesus faced was an illegal trial. The Jews broke their own laws as they tried Jesus because in the Talmud, there was, there was 18 different things that they broke in, this, in these trials that Jesus went through that night. The, 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 number one, he wasn't... I'm not going to go through all 18. You guys are like, oh my goodness. Number one, there, there was to be no trial at night. And Jesus was tried throughout the night. Number two, you were not to try anybody for capital punishment during the feast days. And this was during the feast days. So the Jews had broken all of these things. And, and just so you know, the, the Jews had lost the right of capital punishment. And it was a big deal. It was a big deal for them. They rent their clothes. They were in sackcloth and ashes. Because the Bible said that um, the scepter would not depart from Israel until Shiloh comes. And the scepter they knew to be them ruling their own people. Them having their own rule. And when Jesus was just born a baby in Bethlehem, the Roman um, occupation of Israel took away the right for them to, to have capital punishment. 
and at that point was a huge problem in Judaism to this day. It's a huge problem. They, the, the Bible prophecy that says the scepter won't depart until Messiah comes. And if they don't believe Messiah's come and the scepter has departed. But l- little do they know or did they know that Messiah had come and the scriptures hadn't failed. But they lost the right to capital punishment. So when they wanted to see somebody put to death, they had to take them to the Romans. Otherwise, why didn't they just handle all of this in their own courts among their own people and, and deal with it? But they didn't have the power. So they took him to Pilate. And, and as, you, as we read, Jesus said nothing. In verse 6, it says, Now as the, at the feast, he was accustomed to release one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder and rebellion or insurrection. And so this guy, his name, history tells us, was Jesus Barabbas. So Jesus would have been a, a, a common name like our Joshua today. Other people would have had the name Jesus. Actually, I, I knew a guy named Jesus, and he went by Jesus, not Jesus. And it was always weird calling him Jesus, right? Like, so, so Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas, we know the word Abba. We've been studying it, right? Romans chapter 8, last week, Jesus in the garden, he prayed to the Father, and he said, Abba, Father. It's a term that means, Abba means what? You guys learned anything last two weeks? Abba means daddy or father. It's a very um, term of endearment. It's a term that, the first term that a baby would learn when they say, Dada. You know, um, we, Lydia and I have three boys, and we just adopted a little girl, as many of you guys know. And right now, I'm three for three. The first words out of, out of all three of the boys was Daddy. They all said Daddy before they said Mommy. So, um, so I'm, working on, I'm working on Gabrielle now. I want to go four for four, and I want her first word to be Dada, not, not Mommy. But Lydia and I, we're, we're in competition, so... Maybe we'll take a bet. We'll take pulls to see who's going who's gonna to win. I think I'm going to come to stay undisputed heavyweight champ of the daddy. But this term Abba, and so his name Jesus Baraba, since Jesus, son of the father, is basically, or son of a father, is what his name means. So you have Jesus, son of a father, and then you have Jesus Christ, Jesus, son of the father. And, and the world is presented with these two. And they're asked, which one do you want us to release to you? And they cry out vehemently and they choose this murderer and this insurrectionist over Jesus. And you know what? We live in a world that's the same today. That people don't care what they disagree on. They'll agree on the fact that they hate religion or they hate what they call religion and they hate Jesus. And it's not just any religion. All religions are okay. The only one that's really hated upon is Christianity. And it's the one that's true and the one that Jesus represents. And so here we have this crowd, and he, he has what would seem like an easy choice for most of us, right? You have Jesus who healed people and spent time loving and, and teaching and healing and, and, and working miracles. And you have this criminal, and one of them is going to get released. And Pontius Pilate, who in all of this is in a little bit of a political um, rock in a hard place. And the Jews kind of had him with his back up against the wall. Pontius Pilate's um, political power as the ruler of Judea. He, he had had two strikes already. He had two riots uh, at, at the hands of the Jews where people died and it got really ugly and Rome was made aware. And Pontius Pilate's boss back in Rome told him, if you have any more trouble in your region that you govern, I'm going to take the governorship away from you. You're going to lose your position. You're going to get fired. It's going to be a big problem. Don't have any more trouble in that region. And so the Jews understand that, and they're threatening that they're going to take this to Caesar if Pontius Pilate doesn't give them what they want in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
And so Pontius Pilate is faced with the decision like you and I will be faced with from time to time. And that is, do we do what's, what's right for our career and what's going to help us make more money? Or do we do what's, what's morally right and what, what God calls us to do? You know, uh, Rocky and Tony have probably heard me say this a hundred times because we served together in, in children's ministry for a long time. And I would tell the kids all the time. You know, I would, I would often encourage the young people. And I'd have like third through sixth graders. And, I, you know, I'd be telling them, encouraging, and talking to them about the Bible and about Jesus and God. One of the things that was really dear on my heart that I would share with them all the time was, you know what, you, you guys today, you don't face the pressure of, of having to make those kind of decisions, that, that Pontius Pilate decision. But I guarantee you, as with all of us, you're going to come a day when you're going to be in a position where you're going to have to choose between right and wrong or making more money or getting a promotion. And don't bow. Stay with what's right and decide in your heart today you're not going to do those things. Decide in your heart today that you're going to serve Jesus when that decision comes so that you prepare yourself that when you're faced with that Pontius Pilate dilemma, you don't make the mistake that he did. And it says in verse 8, Then the multitude, crying aloud, began asking him to do just as he had always done for them, which was to release one of the prisoners. But Pontius Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. So Pontius Pilate knew that he was not a criminal, that he had done nothing wrong, that that the, the, the religious system in Israel was in upheaval and that Jesus was threatening the position of the high priest and, and his, and his money. And as you guys know, he was fleecing the flock and he was ripping people off. They were coming to the temple to worship. And, and so Pontius Pilate understood that Jesus was innocent, but this was a a personal grievance among the, the religious in Israel and the high priest. And he says in verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pontius Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they said again, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. And that is that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine standing there and Pontius Pilate and Jesus is there and you're crying as as even as he said in the video with this vitriolic, which is like a bitter, nasty hatred uh, as you spew it out and you see people that, you know, in these in these rallies and in these riots and in these discussions and this just this again, this really bitter discussion and bitterness that comes out of their lives through this stuff. And the position that they were in as they yelled out to crucify Jesus to the point where they didn't care if he let go Barabbas, who was a, a murderer and an insurrectionist and, and by all rights, just an evil person. Society deems that this guy should die for what he did, and rightfully so, and would agree that his crimes deserve death. And yet they'd rather see him released than Jesus and this hatred of Jesus through all of this. And so Pontius Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Did any of you guys see Risen? Christian movie that came out recently about the the centurion soldier who was in charge of investigating the, the missing Um, body of jesus christ first time i saw we went to the movies to see it and it starts with this scene and they're having this fight with barabbas and i'm like trying to figure out the timeline i'm like this is not making sense but then once it kind of developed i could figure out what happened and it just painted a picture and again not necessarily true but just something to think about this guy barabbas that they let go on friday thursday friday by sunday 
They had to go and get him again because he was, he was again back to his ways of murder and of, of crime and was just, just a bad dude. And so in verse number 16, it says, Then the soldiers led him away. I'm sorry, I missed 15, I think. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, Jesus, after he had scourged them to be crucified. And then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed them with purple. And they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were mocking him. Then they struck him on the head with a reed. And they spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him in mockery. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put on his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. I, I don't think we can really do justice the 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 violence and the hatred. And again, Satan is is controlling and Satan had already entered Judas Iscariot as Judas went up and betrayed him. And, and to Satan this is going to be what he thinks is a great victory, but what Satan thought was going to be his greatest victory became his greatest defeat. Because a few days later Jesus would conquer sin and death as he rose from the grave. Amen. What have you guys done today? And, and so, so there's, there, there's just this, again, this vitriolic, bitter hate through this whole process. And, and the price that Jesus paid was very violent. You know, oftentimes I, I try to paint a violent picture and, and fill in a little bit of the details. And I think not only should it just kind of spark a little bit of emotion in us as we consider the price that Jesus paid for us, but also in our intellect to think of this this price that Jesus paid and and also intellectually in that as as bitter and as terrible as, as all of this process that Jesus went through. And as Jesus, as we studied last week in detail, and the key to the message last week was that on the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, it wasn't because of the physical beating. It was because of what's going to happen shortly as he's going to face separation from the Father. And that Jesus did not want us to be separate from the Father, not even for a second. And, and that we should learn from that. And that we should also have that desire. If we understood what it was that troubled Jesus so much, we also would not would never desire to have that, even separation for a second. But they took him to this place, and so Pontius Pilate takes him to a place called the Praetorium. And again, um, in your mind's eye, if you can picture the the Temple Mount, where the Temple of, of Solomon was, where the Dome of the Rock is today. And in that area there in Jerusalem, in the Praetorium, at the Antonio Fortress... One of, the, one of the two really emotional spots when you go to Israel today. When you visit Israel today, the first time you see Jerusalem for the first time. I remember the first time we rode up over the hill and we got out and we got to this look point. And I saw Jerusalem for the first time. It was, it was emotional. It was just great to be there. And, and, I, and I can remember just kind of tearing up and thinking. All, everything was going through my head of everything that took place in that area that I was seeing. And the other place that that can be very emotional is when you go to this place where we're reading about right now in the Bible because it's the actual steps, it's the actual ground that Jesus would have been on. It's the same level, it's preserved, it's called the Praetorium. It would have been at the bottom of the Antonio Fortress where Rome, Rome would have taken their prisoners and beaten them and given them the scourgings and the lashings. And so it was in this place in the Praetorium where they took Jesus and, and as you guys know, the beatings began. They put a bag on his head and they punched him in the face. And then they would put their hands out in front of them. And they would say, prophesy, which one of these hands hit you? Or they would all take turns punching him. And then they would take the bag off his face. And they would say, which one of these hands did not hit you? Prophesy. 
And the reason why they would put a bag on your face is because you would take the full of the brunt. You know, um, when your body has a natural, like, reflex mechanism that, that protects you. And even if you get sucker punched, if you can see it out of the corner of your eye coming, that's enough to, to it's still going to hurt, but, but to protect yourself just enough. But when you don't see something coming, that, that's, that's really when, when it, it takes its full effect on you. You know, we've seen football. It's so true in football, right? We've seen the football, and we've seen the quarterback, and 300-pound lineman's coming right down the middle. He sees it coming. He gets smashed into the ground. You know, he shakes it off. He's hurt, but he gets up, and he takes the next snap. Same play, and you got a 110-pound um, safety or DB who's coming off the corner, and he's got his back, and he doesn't see it coming, and he takes a, a hit in the back, and he doesn't, he doesn't come back. He's hurt because he didn't see it coming, and he couldn't protect himself. And that's why they put a bag on Jesus' face so it would be worse. They, they, they ripped his beard from his face and they spit upon him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they, they beat it down with their clubs because they weren't satisfied when they sat it on his head. They, they eventually beat him. And the way the Roman scourging or, or would work is they took a cat of nine tails. It would have had a wood handle and it would have had nine leather straps that came off of it. And attached to each one of the straps, there would have been little pieces of leather or, I mean, little pieces of metal or glue or glued on glass and different things on the end. And they would hit it across your back and they would pull it across your back. And they would stretch your back out in such a way that it, that it would grab and it would rip as it went across your back. And, and, the, and the full punishment was 40 stripes, 40 lashes with a cat of nine tails given by two Roman soldiers, one on either side, as they would take turns whipping you. And, and, and it was 40, but because they were nice and because they were full of grace, you only got 39. And so Jesus would have taken 39. And then the way it worked, for every one of your crimes that you confessed, they would, they would take off lashes and hit you less. But Jesus had no crimes to confess, and so they continued to whip him, and he took all 39. And then from that place, which is, again, on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, he would have left the praetorium where he was whipped and scourged and beaten. And he would have led down a, a famous little road that we call the Via Dolorosa. The Via Dolorosa would have left the praetorium in the Antonio Fortress and headed out of the city uh, north of the wall, northwest a little bit, to a place called Golgotha. It was the highest point on Mount Moriah there, there as you go there today. It's about 20 feet higher than where the temple sits. And the backdrop to, to it in the mountain is carved. And you go online, you can see it. Type in Golgotha or the place of the skull. And it's uncanny because the rock formation in this, in this mound looks like a skull. Today, the, um, you know, with the winds and the rain, they had some flooding like uh, 20 years ago that took a big chunk of what was the nose out. You can still see it, but it's not as pronounced as it used to be. But you can see pictures of what it looked like 20, 30 years ago. And, and you're no mistaking that the side of the mountain just looks like a skull. And that's why they called it Golgotha or the place of the skull. Even in that day was what it was named. That's how our church is named. It's called Calvary. Where we get our name Calvary Chapel. It's about the cross and about the place where Jesus died on a cross. And it's about Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. And so it was, he would have traveled down that Via Dolorosa. And as we know, we see in the movies that, you know, Jesus would have, they would have taken his cross and they would have strapped it upon his back and he would have carried it down the Via Dolorosa to Calvary. And, you know, tradition tells us that traditionally the Romans didn't give you the whole cross. You just carried the cross beam. It was one beam that weighed 75 pounds. And, and the, the actual upright part was there on the, 
on the Golgotha or the place of Calvary and you carried it as you went down the Via Dolorosa. And it says in verse 21, And they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So as Jesus was leaving the praetorium and headed down the Via Dolorosa on his way to Calvary, he, he was collapsing under the weight of this cross. He was beaten so badly and had very little physical energy left that with every step in agony, he, he, he collapsed. And when he collapsed, the Roman soldiers would kick him and they would hit him with their spears and they would yell at him and they would say, get up, get up. And with everything he had, he would get up and continue his walk down the Via Dolorosa. And finally, the last time Jesus collapsed under the weight of the cross, the Roman soldiers realized that no matter how many more times we kick him, no matter how loud or nasty we yell at him, he, he doesn't have the physical strength to take one more step. So the Lord arranged it, or coincidentally, at the spot where he fell for the last time, the, the soldier looked to the crowd and in that place, and the Via Dolorosa would have been a crowded street. It would have been the marketplace. It would have been where there were shops lined on both sides and people were, and, and Romans wanted the most exposure as, as they, they crucified the prisoners to, to make a statement. And there was a guy who was in town, no doubt. He's from Northern Africa is what the Bible tells us. And, and, and he's called in another place, Simon the, the Niger or, or Simon the Black. And, and so he's somewhere Jew from Northern Africa, possibly has dark skin and um, was called the Black. And he's in that place. And no doubt, he's probably a strong guy, right? He's probably a big guy. I mean, the Roman soldier didn't look in the crowd and see grandma and say, grandma, go pick up the cross. I mean, he found the guy that was big and could handle it. And he calls this guy Simon of Cyrene. And he comes out and he carries Jesus's cross and Jesus from that spot the rest of the way down the Via Dolorosa to the place of Calvary. And then it changed his life, obviously, as it would, right? And Simon the Cyrene became a believer in Jesus. And it mentions that he had two sons, Rufus and Alexander. And we see in the book of Acts and in Romans where Rufus and Alexander became leaders in the early church. And they all got saved and were impacted in their lives. And then in verse 22, it says, And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. I want to pause really quickly, guys, on, on this, this place of the skull. In, in Genesis chapter 22... How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham was told to bring Isaac. And the story's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of weird, right? It's like God tells his patriarch to take his son, his only son, the one whom he loves, up onto a mountain and take a big knife and jab it through his heart. And that's basically what God told Abraham to do. Take now your son, your only son, in whom you love, Genesis 22, up onto a mountain which I will show you to the place that I will show you and sacrifice him there. And Genesis 22 is an exact picture of what we're reading in the gospel today. Genesis 22 is an Old Testament story that detail after detail after detail parallel and is prophecy that Jesus would die on the cross in the exact way. Isaac is a type of Jesus. And, and Isaac, who we see as this little boy, was not a little boy. I believe Isaac was 33 years old, the same age that Jesus was. It says that he carried the wood. And a little boy is not carrying wood. And what, what fits and what's consistent in the story is that Isaac would have been exact story, that Isaac had to be a willing sacrifice, that Isaac could have overpowered his father because nobody took Jesus' life, that he gave it. 
And, and there's, a, there's a word in Genesis 22 in this story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 22, speaking of the father's love for his son. Take now this, this son whom you love. And he's called the only son. And what's interesting is that he had two sons, but God only recognized one, Isaac, son of promise. And what's cool is Abraham was going to go and do what God told him to do. And he didn't understand it. It didn't make sense. He knew in his heart that God had promised that through Isaac, that the nation would be born. God had already told him very clearly that through this son, that, 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 that a nation will be born that will be as numerous as the sand is by the seashore and the stars of heaven. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham in his mind was thinking, well, I guess God's going to raise him from the dead because I know God needs a son. And this is the one that God's going to use. It's not like God's going to give me another son. They waited. This was the son that Abraham waited 40 years for. 40 years. Finally, in his old age, after his wife had already went through the, the stage of life where she couldn't have kids anymore. And, and Isaac was born. And so in Abraham's mind, he said, well, I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. And he takes him up, and it says in Genesis 22, like four times, the place, the place. There's this real interesting and, and kind of repeated term that there's a specific place on planet Earth that God was so interested in taking his son, and, or that Abraham was supposed to take Isaac to a specific place. I want to tell you that place in Genesis 22, if you do the whole GPS, or if you're looking for your Pokemon Go in a certain spot, it's, you know, we used to be, what was it, the... What was that thing they do? Geo-tracking or something like that? We, we were jeeping one day, and we were hiking with the boys and some friends, and we, we didn't know any, I didn't know what geo-tracking was, and I, I was, we were climbing up on some rocks, and there was this canister kind of hidden down in the rocks. We thought we scored, and we get it out, and we open it up, and there's all this junk in it, and later we found out we were, we were geocaching, and we didn't know it. And that's where you have a GPS coordinates that you go, and you find the spot, and you take something out, you put something in. Well, there's a GPS location on planet Earth, the same spot, the exact spot where Jesus died, same spot where Isaac would have brought, where Abraham would have brought Isaac 2,000 years earlier as a prophecy that this is the spot of Golgotha where God would, would send his son to die. You know, if you have this conversation, what, one of the things people point out, which is true, is that when, when Herod built the temple that was there in Jesus' day, Herod did a ton of excavating work. And so he came through and he, he leveled the, the area where the temple mount is today and built up some of the sides in order to level it off. But he, he didn't affect, I believe he didn't affect or change because obviously Calvary is still there this, this day, you can see it. Right under where Calvary is, is an Arab bus station to this day. Directly, directly next to that is a big fence, kind of like a little hill area that leads down to the, the Muslim um, bus stop. So it's a garage, there's buses coming in and out, big blacktop area. And then right up from that is where, is where Golgotha is or where the Temple Mount is. And then directly next to that, so I'm, I'm looking down in the Arab bus station, I'm looking up over here at Calvary, and I'm, I'm in the garden tomb. And not far from here is the place where Jesus would have been laid in the tomb um, that's an authentic site of Jesus's burial and resurrection. And so it goes on in verse 23 and it says, and they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation is written above the, G the king of the Jews. So 9 o'clock, the third hour is 9 o'clock. The Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. So really quickly, 
Third hour is 9 o'clock. Sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 o'clock. So when you see those, you know what they mean. And it says, so the scripture, or excuse me, verse 27, with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Hey, what were the names of the two robbers? The two thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus? We don't know. The Bible never tells us. Here they're called two robbers. and the other place they're called two thieves. They were two criminals. What's interesting is about these two criminals, you know, I often use this in witnessing. I think it's super important, especially, you know, in the, in the area that we live in and some of the religious um, um, rhetoric that, 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 that goes on is that, you know, the, these two guys, what's interesting, they both were in the same proximity to Jesus Christ. I mean, they were both right there. They both had the same opportunity. And one stayed with the theme of hatred and anger and told him to, to take us down and do some miracle to save us and never changed his heart. And the, the other thief on the cross, he said, Jesus, have mercy on me. And what did Jesus say to him? Everybody say it with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. One more time. Today you will be with me in paradise. So that thief on the cross is going to be in the same heaven that you and I are going to be in. That thief in the, on the cross got saved that day. You know what the interesting thing about him is? He was a bad dude. He didn't deserve it. He didn't do nothing to earn it. He had never been water baptized. Can you believe that? He wanted to get water baptized, but he was a little hung up. But he, he never paid tithes. He never went to church. He never passed out any tracts. He never said prayers. He never did anything good whatsoever. And yet he's going to heaven. And, and it just speaks to the truth, you guys, that, that salvation, heaven and hell, is a matter of one issue and one issue only, and that's the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that saves us. Now, now does the Bible tell us that we should get water baptized? Absolutely. Does the, water, the Bible tell us that we should, we should give to the work of the Lord? Absolutely. That we should, that we should do good works? Absolutely. But if good works were a prerequisite to going to heaven... Then, then the thief on the cross would have had no opportunity to go to heaven. And it's only the grace of God that determines salvation or not. Jesus forgave his sins on the cross. He was a murderer. Society rightfully said that this dude should die for his crimes. And, and he was going to die. Now, what the Bible says for good works, it's about reward. So when we go to the thief on the cross, when we see the thief on the cross and we go by his house, he's going to be living in the ghetto part of town. You're going to walk in his front door and fall out his back door type thing. I mean, there's no reward. He's done nothing, as the Bible describes, for good works where we, we're, we're, we're sending up treasures, as Jesus said, to heaven. You know, works are those treasures that Jesus said in Matthew, store it for yourself, treasures in heaven. Those are building materials. And when Jesus said, I'm going to build a mansion, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's like he's a carpenter. He's constructing. He's up there. And you're sending up the building materials. And sure, the thief never had time in his life to, to do things to send up building materials. But nonetheless, he's going to be in the same heaven. He's born again. He's saved. And so again, the next time somebody tells you that, you know, you, you have to tithe to go to heaven. You have to go to church to go to heaven. You have to uh, be a part of a church or B church to go to heaven. Just ask him about the thief on the cross. What about the thief on the cross? Did he do any of those things? No. I don't know. I don't know how they'd spin it. I'm sure they would. I'm sure they'd find a way. 
It says in verse number 20, 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Hey, you guys want to come up with a new tag for, for your Instagram and your Facebook? You know, the SMH? Yeah, I had to ask too. What does that mean? Shaking my head. You see it all the time now. How about, we'll, we'll, we'll add one to it. They went by wagging their heads. WTH. Tag that on your next post. And saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also mocked among themselves and the scribes. And they said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. Now, they didn't mean it this way, but couldn't be more true what they said when they said um, he saved others, but himself he could not save. And the reality is, no, Jesus couldn't save himself. If Jesus came down off the cross, you and I couldn't be saved. And so in order to save others, he had to die on a cross. He had to go and, and follow all the way through and to the point of death. And then in verse 32, it says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe, even those who were crucified with him and reviled him. And now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness all over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, or at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, or which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, there are seven statements of Jesus on the cross. And you have to kind of go through and, and to each of the four Gospels to put it together. For whatever reason, Mark in his abbreviated Gospel only gives us one of the things that Jesus said on the cross. But we know there were actually seven statements of Jesus on the cross. And each one is very important and very prophetic and it speaks to who Jesus was and what he did. And here we have this one, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And, and that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a direct quote from Psalm 22. So mark next to that in your Bible, Psalm 22. If you were a Jew, if you were somebody there who understood the scripture, you knew that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And, and you would have went there and, and, and read it. It should have drawn your attention to Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a prophecy that, that, that the Messiah would die on a cross and be crucified. The kicker is, Psalms was written long before crucifixion was even invented. So the psalmist is prophesying that Messiah is going to die on a cross and be crucified way before the, the technology of crucifixion was ever invented. And by the way, whoever... That scientist was that doctor who, who figured out the science of torture and crucifixion. That was one sick dude. But it, he, he did it to a masterpiece. And Roman crucifixion was scientifically and was designed to torture you. And it was designed in such a way that you, you, you could live on a cross. Oftentimes the death on a cross was from exposure. And so you had the nails in your hands and, and, and in your feet. And there was actually a little stump. And if you see, again, a traditional Roman cross from the time period of Jesus, there's a stump that, that you, you kind of can rest a little bit on. And, and then, but when you're, when you're down in this position, you're, you, you, you can't breathe. And it's in such a way that it, it, it holds your lungs so you can't breathe. So you're, you're dying for air when you're stuck like that. And then you can pull yourself up off of that stump using those nails. And at that point, you'll open your lungs and you can breathe. But the problem is, while you're in this position, have you guys ever had a leg cramp or a muscle cramp? Every muscle in your body is cramping and is excruciatingly painful for you to hold yourself in this position. But you can breathe, but it hurts every muscle and bone of your body and you're in severe pain. 
So then you, you can't handle it anymore and you get to hear. And as you get to hear, the pain's starting to subside a little bit, but you can't breathe. And for somebody who was healthy, like the other thieves on the cross, they could do this for days and days and days and suffer and suffer and suffer. That's why in, in the story, the, 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 when the Jews came and said, hey, take them down off the cross, it's Passover. What did the Roman soldiers do to the two thieves on the cross? They did what to them? They broke their legs. Well, what did that do? With broken legs, they would be stuck in this position and not be able to pick themselves up. And thus, they would have, set, they would have suffocated very quickly and died. And then when they came to break Jesus' legs, the, the Bible says that not one bone of Jesus' body would be broken in the crucifixion, which is hard to believe. I guess that's why God didn't create us with any cartilage in our nose. Because many times as they punched him in the face, and the Bible says that his face was unrecognizable as a man. That, that he, he had no bones broken, but his, no doubt his nose would have been destroyed, right? And his, his whole face would have been swollen and black and blue and, and unrecognizable as a man. But yet not one of his bones were broken. And when the thief or when the soldier came to break his legs, had the soldier broke his legs, we could all go home because the prophecies are broken and the Bible's not true. And the soldier did one of the Isaac things. As the sword was coming down, the knife was coming down on Isaac. And the soldier stopped and the guy said, he's already dead. So he puts the club down and he takes his spear and he said, well, I'm going to make sure. And he jabbed Jesus in the side and blood and water came out. And that's why Jesus said to Thomas, you know, here, put your hand in my, in my holes, in my side from, from the thing. And in verse 37, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Verse number 38, you guys underline it, highlight it, circle it. It's super important to our theology. It's super important to what we understand and what we believe. And there's, there's huge significance in the fact that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. It was done only by God. The veil of the temple was that curtain that separated the, in the Jewish temple, the, the outer core, the, the, the place from the Holy of Holies. So on the very inner part, there was one last step and it was separated by the veil of the temple. Inside the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Inside the Holy of Holies is where the Shekinah glory or the presence of God literally physically dwelt. Once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the people and make atonement for the people. Tradition says that, that they, would, they would tie a, a rope around his leg and put bells on it. So that if, that if he went in there and he was unworthy and had sin and he fell over dead inside the Holy of Holies, they weren't going to go in and get him lest they fall over dead on top of him so they could pull him out with the rope if, if he died in there. And, and so it's, it's, it's not a big deal. It's the only deal. I mean, I don't know how to emphasize it any better. I mean, if you're a Jew, if you're a Christian, that is the Holy of Holies where the presence of God resides in the temple in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is. And, and, and nobody goes in there. Nobody, nobody even knew what it looked like or had been in there. The high priest once a year. And the veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. And it's symbolic. And it's on purpose. And it's important. Because God is saying now there is no more need for a separation between man and God. That every one of you is now the high priest. How sweet is that? You know the high priest had that, that, that cool robe on with the 12 gems on his chest and... You get some bling bling now and we'll set you up as the high priest because now we're all high priests. 
You know, in the Catholic Church, we have the function of a priest, right? You go to a Catholic Church, you go to confessional, and, and that was right. You, you would speak to the priest, and the priest would talk to God for you and tell God what you said and what you needed. And then God would talk to the priest because you weren't quite worthy enough. And then, and then the priest would tell you what God said, and then you would leave and you would do your thing or whatever God told you to do. But that function of a priest, that mediator, that go-between, between man and God, the function of it was gone. It's no longer necessary. The veil of the temple rent from the top to the bottom, and now you have direct access to God. Every one of you is a high priest. Every one of you, you don't need to confess your sins to a priest anymore. You can go directly to God for yourself. You know, we make a big deal about the veil of the temple being rent. And last week we read that the high priest, when Jesus said that he was Messiah and he said that he was the the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7, the high priest rent his clothes. And that's the same picture. It's one we don't talk about as often. The only time a high priest was allowed to rent his clothes, and you'll hear that term in the Bible a lot. They rent their clothes, they sat in sackcloth and ashes. But when the high priest would rent his clothes, that priestly garment, only one time was that allowed. And that was at the death of a high priest. So again, symbolically, that the office of the priest was no longer. And so now we have direct access to God. This curtain that that rent was 30 feet tall, 60 feet wide, and it was four inches thick. And it wasn't getting ripped by anything. And it says from the top to the bottom as it fell down. Let's go to verse number 39. And it says, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so the witness to this centurion soldier who was there, who'd seen many men die, but yet had never seen one die like Jesus died. He became a believer. And they were also women looking on from afar. Among those were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the last, and Jose and Salome. And who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up to him in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting that he mentions, you know, lots of women in those in 40 and 41 that are mentioned by the Holy Spirit. And we we do see that, you know, nowhere in the gospel, you realize nowhere in the gospel do we see a woman reject the gospel. It's not recorded. Not saying it didn't happen, but it's not recorded in the gospel. And, and so we see oftentimes where men and different people, but never is it recorded for us where a woman rejects the gospel. And, and there is, you know, different gifts that God's given to men and women. And there's a certain sensitivity to, to the gospel and to truth and a certain, you know, emotion that's a blessing for, for these women. The other interesting thing is that Mary Magdalene was, was so involved and so close. You know, you don't really want to think of, you know, but basically the Bible says Mary Magdalene is the woman whose seven demons were cast out of her. It says that she was... Basically, that she was a prostitute. And you don't like to think of Mary Magdalene in these practical terms. But again, in that movie, Risen, they're seen and it kind of just for the first time. I just didn't think of it that way. But they're looking for her. The Roman soldiers are looking for her. And the Roman leader, he walks into this room. There's like 50 men in there. He's like, hey, I'm looking for a woman, Mary Magdalene. Do any of you know her? Like 20 hands go up. And yet, this, this is the woman that Jesus loved and that loved Jesus. This is a woman that was forgiven, that was healed, that was restored, that was so connected and in love with Jesus. And Jesus was so in love with her and she's there all the way through this. She's the first one at the tomb when when Jesus raises from the dead here in the next chapter. Amen. And in verse 42, it says, 
And now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself watching, or excuse me, waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You know, you know, oftentimes in church, you guys, we have a public altar call. We ask people to come forward publicly and make a declaration for Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, there's, there's just something to it. There's something powerful about it. You know, I give you guys an opportunity every week and, you know, we don't want to embarrass anybody and, and we don't. And, you know, we, but we want to give everybody an opportunity each week to, to ask Jesus in their heart, to get their life right with Jesus. But the reality is the way that I do it and the way that we see it done in so many churches, you never see that in the Bible. Every time somebody comes to the the Bible and every time Jesus calls somebody, he always calls them publicly. He says to come, to come publicly. And, And that there's something that happens in our heart when we have to just stand up or we have to come up or we have to say publicly, I'm unashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm unashamed of the gospel. The Bible says that if you deny Jesus before men, he's going to deny you before the father. And, and the reality is, if your Christianity is just kind of, you know, even in church among people that love you and want nothing more than to see you come up or get your life right. If you're, you know, if, if even in that setting, it's kind of I'm just happy in the background. You're going to drown in the, in the real world. And your, your Christianity is never going to have the boldness and the, the ability that it needs to survive outside of here. And so we see Joseph of Arimathea who, who does this. He comes publicly. He was one of the Sanhedrin. He was sacrificing everything, career, life, limb, everything. He, he, you know, Pontius Pilate and the political decision he made, we have it now here, Joseph Arimathea, who makes a completely different decision. And then he goes on in verse number 44, and it says, And Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion and asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. And then he brought fine linen, and he took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And here we have Mary Magdalene again. And Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid, and they were there all the way through. Let's have the uh, worship team come up, close us in a song. You know, when I, um, many of you guys know my testimony, and when, um, when I was in junior high, 7th and 8th grade, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have um, any Christian influence in my life. Nobody in my, church, nobody in my family went to church. Most people in my family growing up were in bad shape, to say the least. And I had a neighbor kid who, who invited me to go to this youth group event on a Wednesday night. And uh, they had skateboard ramps out front and... You know, there was cute girls there, and so we went for the girls and the skateboarding, you know. But I, I had to sit through the Bible study because I went, and I went for all the wrong reasons. And I was the worst punk little kid you ever met in your life. When I, when I became a youth pastor, we had this one kid that came through, and, oh, man, this kid was trouble. And he had long hair, and he was dirty, and he just was foul. And he used to wear this T-shirt that said, just thank God I'm not your kid. <laughs> and I used to thank God every day he wasn't my kid. But, you know, I don't know maybe that bad, but I, I had to be close. I thought, you know what, that was me in 7th and 8th grade. I was a mess. I was low income. I was no church, no God in my life and my family. It's about the time when I first started flirting with, 
with drugs and alcohol and seventh and eighth grade. But we kept going back to this, this, this church group on Wednesday night to meet with the other kids and ride our skateboards and mess with the girls. And, um, and, and I went almost every Wednesday, faithfully, two years. And at the end of two years, one of the youth pastors, you know, I tell a story, but when I, when I first started going there, you know, I was just a little punk and I didn't want to know what my name was and I didn't want to get too friendly with anybody. So I told them my name was Steve. And so when they found out my name wasn't Steve, they started calling me Steve Chris. And I, I, uh, at the end of two years, I still remember where I was. It was in Redondo Beach, California, on Redondo Beach Boulevard at a place called the Yogurt Zone. And the pastor called me and, and another kid that I had was coming with was a friend of mine, Ronnie Olivas. And he brought us in this, this room and he said, you know, he started just explaining and asked us we'd be coming from. He said, do you want to receive Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior? And this was like decision time. And that day I said, yes, I want to receive Jesus in my heart to be my Lord and Savior. And, and he led me in a prayer that I'm going to lead you guys in here in just a minute and give you guys the same opportunity that I was get, given to get saved and get, your, get my life right with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said this prayer in eighth grade in the back of my mind as I'm saying the words out loud. And it's kind of like one of those repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Same words I'm going to say here in a few minutes. And, and during that prayer in the back of my mind, I was saying, Lord, I, I kind of like doing A. And B is kind of fun. So, but I don't want to go to hell. And, I, and, I, and I've been believing and I've been learning about Jesus. And I believe in Jesus. And, 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 and I, I, I want to say these words, but I, I don't really want to give you all my life. I want to keep a lot of it for myself. Can I just give you some of it? And I didn't surrender my heart and life that day to the Lord Jesus. And nor did I get saved, nor was there any power in that prayer. And then, and then ninth grade started. And I can remember from that experience, this, this youth group that I was a part of, it ended. And, and in ninth grade, the, you know, I was just kind of floundering. And I can remember there was a Christian club on campus my freshman year. And I knew for sure I was supposed to be a part of that club and go and be a part and, and get plugged in. But it was social suicide. And I wasn't willing to surrender my heart and life to Jesus at that time. And then I was 20 years old, and my life was completely a mess. And I said the same exact words when I said when I was in eighth grade. The only difference was when I was, in, when I was 20, this time I surrendered my heart and life. And so I just want to just share that long story to tell you guys that, you know, I want to give you guys an opportunity, but I want you to understand there's no magic in the words that we say. You could, you could not say these words and get saved. You could say them and not get saved. There's, there's a magic and surrender in your heart. So let's stand together, and I, I want to give you guys an opportunity to, to say this prayer. And I just want to tell you that the Lord looks, and the Lord is searching for those who, who worship Him in spirit and truth. Let's stand. Everybody stand, please. I'm going to be up here, and I'm going to, I'm going to, get, I'm going to pray. And we're going to, we're going to sing a song, and we're going to pray that as a church family. If there's anybody in here that wants to come forward and be prayed for right here in front of I'm going to encourage you as a centurion soldier to just come forward and, and just stand right here with me and, and we'll, we'll pray together. And then we're going to lead the whole church in a prayer as we pray together. But if God's calling you today, I, I want to give you an opportunity to make a public declaration, to not be afraid, to say, yeah, I stand with Jesus Christ. And as a centurion soldier made the right decision and he came forward and Pontius Pilate made the wrong decision, what was politically correct. And everybody that Jesus called, he called publicly. And I know in my life... It took, and I've been in this church for a while, but then the pastor had kept saying, hey, come on, come get your life right. And I just sat there, sat there. But the first time that I came and I came forward, something changed in my life that was powerful. 
And so not to embarrass anybody, but to give you an opportunity to get your life right with Jesus. If you, we're going to sing this song. Let's sing. And as we sing this song, if you want to come up, you, you come up. If you want to stay where you are and we'll pray for you there, we'll pray for you there. But I encourage you to take that step of faith and come up as we sing this next song.